Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Christopher S. Parsharam, MBCHB and PhD, on his article, Moral Distress of Clinicians in Canadian Pediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care Units, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in April 2020. To access the full article, visit pccmjournal.org. Dr. Parsharam is a pediatric critical care medicine physician and professor of, at, of pediatrics at the University of Toronto uh, in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for meeting with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank, thank you, Margaret, and uh, good day, everyone. Chris, would you start by talking about moral distress? What is it and why is it important? Certainly. So, so. Moral distress is a is a perception or experience. Uh, it's been defined in a, in a number of uh, similar and related ways. The, the key uh, factors are the perception or experience of constraint preventing an individual doing what they believe to be or they know to be morally or ethically correct. Thus, they're being stopped from doing something that uh, they believe should be done or if they had their uh, their way would would be what would or should happen um, so this is uh, this sense of constraint or frustration uh, is increasingly recognized uh, within healthcare uh, as a phenomenon that's linked to another an, a number of other related forms of psychological distress uh, there's notion of residual moral distress, of burnout, of uh, traumatic stress, uh, and related uh, phenomena. So this this construct in our current environment is receiving a lot of attention um, because the well-being of healthcare professionals in our complex ICU environments is also associated beyond the immediate professional retention and administrative aspects can impact patient care and the well-being of the people who are in the ICU providing care and their families. So the construct of moral distress is both uh, narrowly defined but also has fairly broad uh, potential implications. How does one measure moral distress? Well, a a number of ways, Margaret. The the easiest way uh, and our collaborator and partner, uh, Tricia Prentice in Melbourne, uses the moral distress thermometer where the simple question is asked, uh, in this circumstance, can you please rate your experience of moral distress? We also asked a similar direct question uh, in yes-no format in our first publication and in a five-point Leichhardt scale. However, the the classic and more detailed measure of moral distress is using the moral distress scale, and we use the revised version uh, by Anne Hamrick and uh, colleagues. Uh, And this this measure asks uh, about 21 situations, and the respondents describe the amount of distress that they feel when in these situations and the frequency with which they've been exposed to the situations. Uh, and then the frequency is multiplied by the, uh, the degree of distress to give a score that could be as low as zero or as high 
as 336 for the 21 questions. So, so it can be measured in many ways. Uh, we chose the, uh, the accepted uh, standard, the Moral Distress Scale revised for the paper that we're about to discuss. Is there anything that can be done to mitigate moral distress? Well, that's a very good question. And I think the foregoing uh, elements of our discussion would suggest it's an important consideration in our current environment with many potential implications. I think the issue of mitigation is related to a number of factors. First, we need to understand what it is that we're mitigating. And the, the notion of moral distress as I've uh, suggested, I think crosses over to many other forms of moral distress when we uh, operationalize the very specific definitions. Um, So the origins are important. There's a lot of efforts um, in well-intentioned programs that are intended to increase resilience, decrease compassion fatigue, uh, mitigate burnout, Um, And these are related to moral distress. Uh, We studied some of these sorts of programs, uh, uh, ethics, participation in ethics rounds, debriefing, and these sorts of interventions uh, within the context of the study. Um, I think the more important point about your, your question, what can be done to mitigate moral distress, really is the, the remaining question, because our presumptions of things that may work have yet to be studied in a sufficiently rigorous way, in the same way we would study a treatment um, to be sure that these things work. Common sense would tell us, yes, uh, empirical data, which we'll discuss shortly, would suggest that perhaps there's less effect than we would like. So tell us about your study. Why did you do this study and how did you do it? Well, the study was a national survey that that began following our single hospital three ICU study. And in that, um, we showed moral distress was uh, prevalent as measured using the scale and by uh, the simple questions uh, and some demographic associations and wished to see if the study in one hospital was relevant across Canada. Um, And we suspected it was a national phenomenon, uh, wanting to increase our understanding um, and then beginning to explore some of the uh, potential impacts of the things that many people are doing to with the intent of reducing moral distress. Um, and this was all part of a, a broader program of research to evaluate and, and reduce excess distress in healthcare professionals in Canadian ICUs and perhaps more, uh, more widely. Uh, so the study a survey, um, we looked at uh, uh, a number of uh, uh, ways to access and, uh, the hospitals and individuals in those hospitals. And one of the, the benefits of being in uh, a country of medium size, such as Canada, is the, the number of national networks and uh, existing collaborations is large compared to the modest community of NICUs and PICUs. The level three NICUs and PICUs, just, there's just over 50. So we were able to contact each and establish uh, relationships or re-establish relationships with leaders, nursing uh, and physician leaders, uh, to put the survey in place um, 
and got responses from just over 50 individuals per ICU uh, and just over 3,000 uh, responses, uh, just around 45% of the 7,000 staff in these ICUs. Um, the survey was electronic, uh, and I think this is part of the success of the survey and available within a six-week period in each ICU. Uh, there were reminders, local champions, and I think one of the things about this survey, it's the sort of survey that people want to participate in. Uh, when we did the pilot, it was very interesting. I've never done a survey before where I'm chased down the corridor for people by people wanting to get more surveys um, because someone in the room missed the opportunity to participate. So that's the sort of survey this was. And uh, I think the, the, the topic uh, and the engagement of frontline staff reflects that. The, the survey was uh, conducted over a four or five month period. And, and I, I think without the, the dynamic uh, energy of uh, Claire McNeil, who led the, uh, the day-to-day of the study, it wouldn't have succeeded. Uh, however, um, the, uh, the results came back and uh, with uh, the study team, we were able to move to explore the findings uh, and uh, the questions that we sought to address. What were your findings in this survey? First, um, a good response rate for a national survey. Um, And we found a range of moral distress, Margaret, that perhaps was not surprising. Uh, A a proportion, just under a quarter, had low scores of less than 50, and just over a third scored more than 100. Um, The median was lower at 79 was lower than our single centre survey, uh, where we had a median of 97. Um, out of And again, this is out of 336 uh, as the absolute maximum. So these, these scores uh, were correlated with self-report and would suggest to us that a threshold of around 90 to 100 is on the higher end of uh, moral distress uh, rate, uh, ratings. Um, importantly, uh, amongst those surveyed, the scores of nurses were higher than those of uh, physicians by about uh, 20 points, so a quarter of the, uh, the average type score. And registered respiratory therapists uh, were, again, um, uh, between physicians and nurses in terms of their moral distress scores. Um, Those that had been in ICU longer, uh, and by longer, if a person had been in the ICU more than 20 years compared to uh, someone in their first years, there was a 40-point difference. So this would suggest those people that hang around um, in ICU have much greater moral distress than those who are newly arrived. So there may be an exposure effect. And this is, for me, this was interesting in that I would have thought that if moral distress was such a debilitating phenomenon, those that uh, had it might leave and thus um, the effect between new and older staff would be smaller. This is quite, for me, quite a striking effect of uh, exposure to ICU practice. Um, the, these were the, the 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 bullet points of the 
larger findings from uh, the the work. Um, we we also found relationships with uh, depersonalization and uncertainty, and the situations that were most common uh, were those that described end of life uh, and resource uh, resources within ICU uh, related to staffing and perhaps care quality. Uh, the the top situation that people indicated the greatest degree of distress was families' wishes to continue life support, even though it is not in the best interests of the child. Now, recognising this as a, a situation that the provider uh, is asked about, uh, and this was both the most frequent uh, and uh, with the degree of distress, contributed to just under 10% of the total score. So this is clearly uh, an important issue for frontline staff. The other top seven items, and those of you that have access to the PDF um, may see this uh, in figure one, um, show that the top seven items are around just over half of the, the score uh, and relate to the domains end of life, staffing and care quality I mentioned. Um, and the things that perhaps people think most about from outside the medical profession that may uh, uh, may induce distress, providing high-dose sedatives um, and the family asking not to discuss the death of a child with a child had both low frequency and the lowest scores. And, and one could think also... Um, we're talking neonatal ICU, so perhaps the relevance of this question may have also contributed to the the, the low score. So the, these these situations are important, consistent with the lived experience, uh, consistent between studies, and also consistent uh, with studies that have asked more generically about uh, sources of distress and moral distress in ICU, uh, and suggesting to me that this is not an isolated phenomenon, but a very widespread phenomenon uh, consistent across units. Those are really interesting findings. What did you learn about the potentially mitigating factors that you talked about earlier? The mitigating factors, um, we evaluated the, the dose of the exposure to each of six um, potentially mitigating factors. Uh, these were debriefing, attendance uh, at counselling, um, ethics meetings, mortality and morbidity meetings, team meetings. Um, each of these were associated with modest, uh, sign statistically significant, but modest reductions in moral distress. Um, if one looks at the the uh, the graph, also one can see that exposure, greater exposure to family meetings, may be associated with more measured moral distress. So, so yes, a signal from this, and each um, had less than ten points of uh, difference in the uh, in the range of exposures to the the moral distress score. Now, and it may be that there's. Uh, effects related to those people that are attending distress mitigating uh, uh, sessions have lower distress because they're attending the uh, sessions. And this is one of the, the limitations of cross-sectional work. Um, we also um, showed the questions about leadership and institutional supportiveness were 
um, correlated both with each other and also uh, greater perception of supportive environment was associated with lower degrees of moral distress. Um, And again, cross-sectional data and perhaps the cynics uh, listening in the audience will be thinking, well, yes, the people who are feeling good about life have rose-coloured glasses um, and see all things well. Those that are not feeling good um, or for whatever reasons are seeing things in a dimmer light. Uh, Again, this is a a limitation of the cross-sectional data. However, it makes sense uh, in the way the, uh, the findings have come to us. I think clearly there's more work to be done here about uh, evaluating things that we think might be useful. Um, there's a lot of a lot of goodwill, a lot of good intent that I think we we in the same way uh, apply great effort and deliberations to our safety strategies. Uh, I think we should be thinking. Similarly, that our well-being strategies and mitigation of distress and preemptive strategies to uh, prevent the the development of moral distress in frontline staff are similarly carefully considered, rather than simply assuming because we need to do something that doing something is good. You mentioned depersonalization earlier. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, depersonalization, it, it certainly resonates with people who are wanting to view the objective intensive care person who's burnt out um, and dispassionate uh, and disconnected with the, the human side of intensive care. This is depersonalization at its worst. And there's measures of depersonalization that are widely used. The Madlight burnout uh, inventory, uh, and the while while there's some some may have reservations about the the characterization of the high moderate and low degrees of uh, depersonalization and other domains of uh, burnout. What we found was that in this study, twenty three percent had high degrees of depersonalization. Um, one one could argue that this is bad. Um, uh, however, if one looks at the development measure, uh, the mechanism of development, sorry, for the depersonalization measure, um, high degrees of depersonalization were defined as those in the top third of a normal population. So one could argue that uh, uh, a quarter of staff in the uh, ICUs for children in Canada had high degrees of personalization, depersonalization, which is below expected. Um, However, we also found that these, irrespective of this characterization, we found those that had higher depersonalization scores um, also had higher degrees of moral distress. And if one reflects on this a little, uh, one might think that depersonalization, disconnection from patients, would cause an individual to be less distressed about a given situation. This isn't what we found. We found that these two things were positively correlated. More depersonalization reported was associated with more moral distress. 
So this for me is a recurring and uh, intriguing finding, which which makes me wonder about the nature of these psychological measures. I think valid, but perhaps not as precisely defined, but not as precisely operationalized as we might like. Um, and am I saying that depersonalization is not an issue? I'm, I'm definitely not saying that, Margaret. It, it is an issue. Compassion, compassion fatigue, engagement are, I think, foundational aspects of uh, intensive care practice, neonatal, pediatric, and adult. What factors did you look at for variability, and how did you account for that? I began this study with uh, a, as as a pediatric intensive care practitioner who believed that uh, there was differences between neonatal and pediatric ICUs that would perhaps preclude their uh, their union, and that that was one obvious source of potential variability. Also, the, the broader looking at the broader literature, we thought that there may be hospital, um, ICU culture uh, level effects. There's many uh, well-designed um, surveys and other instruments to describe the effects of culture, the relationship with safety and quality of care. Things that we were showing in the moral distress survey were important sources of distress. So we thought that these overarching environmental factors uh, may be important. Uh, and so we, we looked at these uh, and to see what influence they had um, using provincial level clumps. There were 31 hospitals in which the 49 ICUs that participated were in. So there may have been some hospital level effect um, in addition to ICU level effects. In addition to this, having shown that measured variables within individuals like the professional background, the years of experience that we've discussed, we included these to see once we'd accounted for these sorts of known characteristics, uh, what what the, the effects were. And interesting, as uh, was George Tomlinson insisted that we do um, the the these sorts of analyses to see where the variation was, and I'm I'm very grateful for for him uh, in insisting that we we drill down to look at the effect of province uh, of ICU, and paradoxically, and in spite of uh, the the cultural um, milieu that we we hear about recurrently, these effects was very small compared to the effects that we. We observed within individuals, but could not explain by the measured data. So these 90% of the, the variation in score relates to variations that we didn't measure in the study with individuals. And yes, there were effects. Nurses had more distress than physicians and respiratory therapists. Um, NICUs and PICUs were not different. Hospitals were not significantly different um, between uh, uh, within and between provinces. So these sorts of variations mean important thing have important consequences for our thinking about moral distress. It's an individual phenomenon that may have group level effects in terms of retention and performance, but our our approach, that it suggests, should be more customized to the individual than um, changing culture at hospital level. What are the limitations of your study? 
Well, I'd like I'd love to tell you that there were no limitations, Margaret. Um, but, um, the, uh, it, it was a cross-sectional national survey. Um, many journals, um, not pediatric critical care medicine, uh, decline surveys that have less than 70% response rate. The response rate we observed was very good for a, a study of a survey of this size. Um, uh, ideally, a greater response rate uh, would have ensured more representativeness within each ICU and of individuals. And it may be that the response rate reflects bias in that those who were too distressed to participate or insufficiently distressed to, uh, to, to care about the, this sort of survey because it, they may not have seen it as relevant. So as a, as a survey um, with, uh, with an incomplete response rate, um, there may be biased responses. There's also a lot of unmeasured variables. And uh, as much as uh, it would have been nice, Margaret, to have asked all the things um, about people, we, we have to make judgments in order to optimise the information versus the respondent burden rate. Um, and it might also be that when we took a moment uh, of an individual's time that we caught them at a bad moment and uh, this bad moment coloured the survey. So in addition to the unmeasured variables, it may also be the timing of the survey um, was a bad day or perhaps it was a good day. In addition, there may be other biases in that the, uh, the individuals choosing to respond had either strong motivations to participate in a given study or were, were perhaps more closely associated with the administrators who were uh, assisting as uh, local champions. We talked about the biases that uh, of a cross-sectional design with respect to the, uh, the potentially mitigating factors. Those who were attending the mitigating factors more may have actually had their greater distress reduced. And so our findings require... Uh, verification in more uh, longitudinal designs. Having, having said that, the limitations are important to acknowledge and to incorporate into our interpretations. I do think that there's a number of key messages here. Moral distress exists. Um, there's a range of distress that we've observed, that this distress is positively associated with burnout of the depersonalization sort also with uncertainty about uh, clinical effects, and that there are large groups of individuals who have greater distress. Uh, however, that the experience of distress and uh, the, the, the variability in reported distress is not something that we have understood uh, as well as we might um, in this large macro level study. Uh, I think this leads to the, the classic scientist statement, more research is needed. It really is. Um, and because I think this is a fundamentally important area. Uh, we've, we've also published some other work describing the notion that zero may not be the ideal goal of stress or distress. I think the concepts are related. Um, and based, based on the, the Yerkes-Dodson model within uh, psychology, that, that's, uh, that's older than both you and I, uh, Margaret. It's, it's a very well-established model. Um, the notion that having no stress 
might actually be associated with worse performance and in the same way that having too much stress may be associated with decrements in uh, performance. So it's a, it's a complex milieu. And I guess as a scientist uh, and, and a practicing clinician, knowing that considerable resources are being deployed with the, the laudable intent of fixing this problem, understanding the problem as well as we can and its origins, and also understanding that the things that we are doing are helping remain very important ongoing questions that that warrant more work than a national survey to describe and characterize in a in an epidemiologic sense the the nature of this looming problem well thank you very much for that very thoughtful discussion of your um, what is a really important topic do you have any final comments you'd like to make Yes, um, our ongoing work is uh, is more actively engaged and will will uh, involve the uh, integration of multiple disciplines. I'd like to acknowledge the fact that you're speaking to one member of a large team that involved biostatistical expertise that allowed us to drill down into some of the the, the complex aspects. Um, the past president of the Canadian Association of Critical Care Nurses is the first author. Um, nursing, physicians, respiratory therapists, the interprofessional nature of moral distress is something that begets an interprofessional approach. Um, and I think I, I applaud our administrators for and the public for being concerned about the well-being of healthcare professionals in ICU. Uh, I implore our administrators and, and members of the public to be patient as we carefully work out ways to make us more effective, to support us in our practice, while we also acknowledge that making zero distress is something that we, we might actually wish to avoid. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today, Chris. It's really been interesting. It's, it's been my pleasure. Uh, thank you very much, Margaret, for your, your time, your interest, and questions. We have been speaking today with Dr. Christopher Parsharam from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, about his article, Moral Distress of Clinicians in Canadian Pediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care Units, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in April 2020. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York. She is a former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She is currently serving as Associate Editor of Critical Care Medicine and Senior Associate Editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care Podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. 
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.